Hello and welcome to Dim Lights and Stiff Drinks, Dive Bars of Seattle. For this week's episode, we are doing something a little different. Rather than our usual dive bar destination, we are instead at the Pike Brewing Company, beautiful and cozy brew pub nestled inside the Pike Place Market. It is in fact the oldest independent brewery in Seattle, which certainly fits our bill of interesting and historically significant drinking establishments. But the location is not necessarily what brought us here tonight. Rather, we are here to talk to one of the, the owner and founder of the brewery, who inarguably is, is one of the godfathers of local craft beer. For that reason, this will be a special episode that we plan on doing from time to time, in which we occasionally take a detour from our usual dive bar locations and will instead explore a cool story or interesting person that is somehow connected to our podcasting journey. In the case of tonight's episode, we are taking a little side trip to explore the history of local craft beer. Obviously, beer is an important part of our show as it goes hand in hand with all the different places we visited. But how many craft beer lovers out there know about the history of local beer? Or know about the people responsible for Pacific Northwest being one of the top craft beer meccas of the world? Well, tonight, we're going to talk to one of those people. And that person is Charles Finkel, who is sitting with us right now. Welcome to our podcast, Charles, and thank you so much for hosting us. Oh, my pleasure. So are you a local? You're well, I've been raised? here since uh, 1974. Oh, okay. So I regard myself as local. Yeah, where'd you grow up? I grew up in Oklahoma. That's okay. what I was just... Uh, the flyover countries. Saying that flyover country? Yeah, that's Well, normally call people it. address that by, oh, Oklahoma, yeah, I've, I've driven through there. <laughs> yeah, it's somewhere in there. <laughs> it depends on their affluence, whether they've driven or flown. <laughs> so, but Charles... I was just saying that I grew up during Prohibition which wasn't repealed in Oklahoma until 1959. Whoa. So that gives, gives me a perspective on marketing alcoholic beverages that's somewhat unique. Yeah, I would, nice. I would say so. So how did they get it in Oklahoma? They go over the state lines if you were well, close? I wrote a, I'm a writer, too. I wrote middle, a story a one time about what be the true story about being with my brother and his friend. He was 16 and I was 11. And we took his 1930-something DeSoto car out to meet a bootlegger on the road okay. close by. And had my, uh, my brother and his friend been six rather than 16, Perfect. the bo Good. bootlegger would have been delighted. To, as, long as, <laughs> as long as he had the money, that would have been the only criteria. And so my brother bought this case, a wooden case of White Horse Scotch Whiskey, which we proceeded to put in the closet of my shared bedroom with my brother and he and his friend, I tasted it, it was good, but he and his friend proceeded, I guess, to drink it over a period of time. <laughs> I wish I knew how much it cost, probably not that much. So that's how you got it, or you, you uh, were the son uh, of illicit parents who would drive to, oh. would drive to Missouri or, or Arkansas and buy alcoholic beverages there. My parents were very temperate drinkers, but they were obligated. You didn't want to drive to Missouri or Arkansas without buying what's not available in Oklahoma. Right. So later in my career, I called on... So that's where you got it when you were a kid. You yeah. They, snuck it from your parents a little bit. Yeah, that's right. Well, I didn't get too much of it. I also traveled a lot. So mm -hmm. I traveled to New York regularly, San Francisco regularly. I taste my grandfather or uncle's beers or uh, got tasted wine. 
I've had wine during my childhood. What was the beer like back then? Was it just lager? Was it Bud Miller Coors? No, it was before Bud Miller Coors. Those were existed, of course. But America was, uh, this is a good place to talk about it, Prohibition did away with 4,000 breweries in America. So in 1876, right. there, and this, which is represented on this wall, there were 4,000 breweries, 4,000 stories, 4,000, millions of stories. All these families like ours wanted to brew beer, run restaurants, run hotels, just as it had been done for time of memoriam. <laughs> and they were, they were put out of business. So that resulted in prohibition. And then in 1933, the most famous political speech in American history was, was pronounced. And that was FDR, now's a good time for a beer. Yeah. So <laughs> prohibition was repealed. That's that, when uh, that the, said the, the, signing? the Colin yeah, Harris Act, the National Beer Day I was telling you guys about. Then about 700 breweries emerged. The stronger of those 4,000 were the ones that emerged. And then, pretty quickly, they decreased in number exponentially. Right. So by 1978, 100 years after I described, I got into the beer business as a beer enthusiast that was not well served by what was available to me. And at that time, there were 40 breweries. And of the 40 breweries, I didn't know at the time why. I didn't really, I, I liked, I'd had good beer in Europe, in Germany particularly, but whatever I bought, whatever how fancy the package was, it was from Denmark or, or Sweden or Norway. Norwegian was the best of those. Oh, really? Because they had the Rheinheitskabo. I, I later found out the Bavarian purity law. It still have in Norway. Interesting. But they didn't have that in Sweden or Denmark or a lot of other areas. Mexico, certainly. Japan. China. So the conventional wisdom was if Budweiser is the most successful beer in the world, or these mass market American lagers are the most successful beer in the world, shouldn't we make a beer just like that? So just about all of them did. And yes, it was all just light, innocuous lager beer. Whereas traditionally, we had IPAs, we had Bach beers, right. we had stouts, we had pale ales, we had everything. But by the time that I'm talking about, yeah. the 1950s, when I was growing up, that you started to see the, whereas at one time... Well, that, isn't that because there were ABV laws on the books? Like there were horrible... So there was, there was it was lot, different state to state. A lot of stuff those those laws uh, derived from prohibition. Yeah. 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 And so, so what was the number here? What well, was it was originally three point two percent, and then they inched it up to four. You're talking about number of breweries? Uh, no, percentage of alcohol. Yeah, thirty-three point two. Brewing all this other stuff. Yeah. So that's yeah. a growth of, of, of prohibition too. Prohibition, you could brew beer, it had to be 0.5 or under. They okay. Call it, they, they call right. that near, near beer. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And it didn't taste very good. You yeah. want me to be close? I wouldn't to imagine. I'm just, uh, I'm just trying to. It didn't taste very good, and it was never very, for that reason. It was never, never very popular. I think if it tasted well, good, even if it was low in alcohol, I like low in alcohol, it tastes good, but it takes a certain amount of alcohol to make a beer taste good. Yeah, it's true. That's just the reality of it. That Charles, is real. are you hip to steam beer? Do you know anything oh. about the manufacturing of steam beer? So in yeah, the, at the cabin the episode, hole. Brad, talk, tell us, the, uh, repeat the steam beer. What is well, it? Well, one of the places we visited was the cabin in Shoreline. You've probably been there before, you know, with all the weird slope bar. Have you ever been there before? What is it? It's called the cabin. 
It's it's an old carriage house. It's in Shoreline. It's the oldest running business in Shoreline. No kidding. Yeah, and it was one of the first ones to open after um, in 1933 when they allowed beer to uh-huh. be served again. It's been running ever since. But my research showed that after this was lifted, they were making their own steam beer, uh-huh. and steam beer started out in like mining camps and stuff, and they were kind of improvising with what they had, and they were brewing in a really fast manner of time. Uh-huh. They were, they said overnight. I don't know if that's true or not. <laughs> well, I, it seems what I impossible to make beer using, in twenty four hours. Using is that possible? Anaerobic yeast. Yeah, all things are possible with the Lord. Yeah, <laughs> I learned that in Oklahoma. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> they were using lager uh, yeast, but but uh, the temperature of ale. So mm. lager okay. is means cellar in in German. So it is normally cellared at a cellar temperature, okay. which was about 50 to 55 degrees, okay. whereas ale, like red wine, is brewed at about 70, ours is 71 degrees. Okay. So if you use the anaerobic lager yeast and brew it, with, uh, brew it at 70 degrees, then, then you get a beer. Uh, there are a couple of steam beers that are behind you. Nice. Oh, uh, cool. And, uh, nice. And, but but yeah. in the case of wow. the reality of it is, it, it's a little bit of a gimmick. Yeah. Because, have, uh, is it like fortified? It, well, they pour our some brewery is grain, literally a steam brewery. Some, right. Because our, we get our steam from Seattle Steam across the street. So oh, we, no kidding. We're a steam brewery. You know, so Anchor... <laughs> Took yep. the, in the California, brewed a like lager beer, Anchor Steam, brewed a lager beer. I'm talking about the modern incarnation of Anchor, which was purchased by right. Fritz Maytag of the Washington exactly. Company yep, yep. in the 1960s. It was the first craft brewery, if you will. It wasn't. It was just a regional brewery before he bought it. Right. But then he trademarked the word steam. Yeah, and it didn't have any real technical meaning. He gives you that story I just gave you, but from a technical point of view, it didn't have only, anything to do with the previous steam beer that they were making. Well, we all over America we made steam beer. Oh, okay. They probably did make steam beer here in Seattle, but steam beer is just just kind of I think when they had steam. Okay. They, they, they were just using it. I to, believe that's more important than the actual. Constituency of the beer. Okay. People would argue. But where them. does the steam come in? You mean steam to power the oven, or yeah? Well, in you our case, it's not we, pressurized. In our case, we way, buy right? it from a private utility company. Right. We, but a lot of breweries have their own steam engines to create the steam that they need because you need steam in a brewery because brewery, brewing is about ninety percent cleaning, ten percent brewing beer. So yes, yeah, yeah. so you want to keep it clean, and steam is a good, efficient, inexpensive, sustainable way to do that. And so we have the good fortune of having them across the street, and they're a 100-year-old private utility company. They supply downtown hospitals, hotels. That's us. cool. I didn't know that. Yeah, That's awesome. Uh, wow. Copper Works Distillery. All, we all get steam from them. And, like- we, and we use it in different ways. But uh, I suppose... It's pressure, we right? Or is it so, is uh, it low pressure, Low pressure steam. And our kettle, if you see our kettle right out that you saw oh, it. Yeah, I took a picture of it right? coming up. That is a jacketed kettle that where we run the steam through the jacket to maintain an even, even temperature of the work. 
Okay. And, and uh, if we, the alternate to that would be to have a copper kettle, which of course is a lot more expensive. Yeah. And uh, but essentially transmits the heat in a similar way. Right. Yeah, so that's fascinating. Jacketed steam. It's more. So, as I mentioned, Charles played an instrumental role in the history of craft beer here in the local area and in the country at large. We're going to talk to Charles about all this and more, but before I do, I would just like to go over a quick bio of Charles so listeners can get an idea and kind of a good understanding of why he is such an important figure in local beer history. So, Charles, I'm going to go over your bio and, of course, correct me if I get any dates or any facts wrong, but I think I got it pretty good. So, from my research, it sounds like your career started during college when you managed a liquor store. And after completing your studies in design and marketing in 1965, you moved to New York to work for a wine importer. In 1969, you founded your own wine company, Bon Vin, which was the first to offer boutique wines from small independent wineries in Europe, California, and Washington State. In 1974, you and your late wife, Roseanne, sold Bon Vin and moved to Seattle where you became VP of sales and marketing at the Chateau St. Michel Winery in Woodenville. Your design, because you're a design artist too, among many other things, was selected to be used as their logo and in a short order of time your skills as a marketer had successfully helped them gain national prominence. Is it national or is it just huge regional? You're talking about Saint Michel Winery? Yeah. It's international. International oh, at this yeah. point, It's the largest yeah. producer of Riesling wine in the world. Yeah, they're Whoa. huge. Yeah. The little brewery that could in Woodenville is... Little winery. Winery, <laughs> yeah. Beer, wine, whatever. It was like, yeah, it's fine. I'll so I, so if I may correct you, Brad. Yeah, please when, do. When we moved here to go to work for that company, it was called American Wine Growers, and later to be changed to Chateau Saint-Michel. Okay. But the company, the brand itself was not Chateau Saint-Michel, it was just Saint-Michel, because there was no chateau. Oh, okay. We moved here to build the chateau, which was opened in 76. Interesting, okay. So which, which came first, the idea of the chateau or the chateau itself? No, definitely the idea. Yeah? The idea was first. We had the idea and then we built it. Like Saint-Michel sounds good, but it needs, it needs a little more, a little, a little something in front there. Well, Saint-Michel was the name of the wine, the, the first true vinifera wine in Washington State was given to that wine by the daughter of one of the owners of American Wine Growers who had visited Mont Saint-Michel in France and just fell in love with that area and liked the name. So she introduced uh, Saint-Michel, what was formerly Mont Saint-Michel, and then when we built the chateau, it became Chateau Saint-Michel and has remained that ever since. Wow, that's awesome. Yeah, it's, it's a success in Asia, Europe, the right. United States. All over the world, Even yeah. Even Washington State. <laughs> and then Brad, that's what was after Chateau. So in uh, so it looks like in 1978, you quit your position at the winery and founded Merchant Duvin, a wine import store in Seattle. And I was gonna, so I was going to ask you, so where was that located exactly? No, we weren't a store. You weren't a store. We were an importer that sold nationally. Okay. And then ultimately internationally. Okay. And currently sells in China and sells in a lot of different areas. So our okay. offices were 214 University Street in one of the most handsome buildings in Seattle, a Tudor-style building that is where, right downtown. where the Chihuly 
chandeliers now hanging in Benaroya Hall. That's okay. that was my office. Wow. No kidding. Wow. Second wow. Union, I think of that. You were university. But university between uh, uh, second and third. Okay. Okay. On nice. the on the north side of the street, the Brooklyn huh. building was on the other side of the street, and they they then uh, tore down what was there and left the facade one side of the Brooklyn and recreated on the other side, and, and that's what you have there now. And then they built that beautiful Wamu Tower behind it. Wow, that's awesome. Uh, so, why while you were running Merchant Duvin during? Your mini wine purchasing trips abroad. It sounds like you beer, and your wife. Beer. Merchant of Van, although the name was, says Merchant of Wine, the reality was that we started that, wine and beer, and about a year later, based on the success of the beer, we drank the wine and sold the beer. <laughs> okay, well, that's. Well, what are you going to do if it's not selling? Because we got to drink no, it. No other options. You got you to drink it. That sounds like a good business plan to me. We drank the beer too, as a matter of fact. <laughs> now, this is an important part of your story because during this time, this was when, when you, if you went to the store to buy beer, basically all that was available was bland commercial lagers, which dominated the American beer market at the time. Bud Miller Coors. Budweiser Miller Coors, yeah. yeah. And even the beers from Europe, which because they sold for higher prices, people presumed to be better. Were not. They were done. Heineken? They were. They were like Heineken or Corona or Asahi or Karen or there are a lot of them. But they weren't. They were, they were dumbed down in the same way America beer had been dumbed down by right. substituting malted barley for which is what real beer is made with with corn syrup filler. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, okay. So junk beer, but you were able to kind of recognize an opportunity to change that. I was because I was a wine merchant, and I was schooled in the sensory evaluation of wine, and also I had a big interest in the history of wine and in uh, the historical uh, contribution that wine has made, and uh, I was able to transfer that information to another product that I loved and that had been underserved in all of those ways. People didn't know about the history so much. There were a certain number of people that did, but generally speaking not. They didn't know about the ingredients, they didn't know about the fermentation, they didn't know about the taste because they all tasted the same. Right, right. And you changed that because Merchant Duvin, like you said, started selling this imported beer. What, what we did and then it started getting around, right? So we like, identified the classic styles of brewing, the recipes. Yeah. Beers. And if they, if they didn't exist at the time that we did that, we encouraged brewers that we had a relationship with, we being me, encouraged brewers to start making them. Okay. So beer styles that had gone out of style, like oatmeal stout or porter, right, those right. didn't exist even in where they came from, let alone in the United who, States. Who were some of the first brewers that were receptive to those ideas? Well, Samuel Smith Brewery in uh, Tadcaster in Yorkshire, England, yep. was one. The Lindemans Farm Brewery in, in Belgium. We were the first to import Belgian beers in America. We are the first to import English beers other than the mass market dumbed down brands. Like right, Guinness like Watney, and uh, Watney's Watney's Red, Red Barrel. Barrel. My friend Michael Jackson later told me that in England they call that Rotney because it has <laughs> so many preservatives and, has, and as a result of that it no longer exists. 
but Einger Brewery in Bavaria. Beck's maybe, or Harp? Beck's is, Beck's is owned by Budweiser. Harp is owned by uh, Guinness, which is huge, the, one of the biggest companies in the world, and neither of those are very good. Yeah. Did, did, you find, did you find any domestic brewers who were interested in, in the idea too? I did, I visited, ever, because I had done the same thing with wine. I visited, I was the first person to go to the Napa Valley starting in the night, late 60s to represent. The reason I did that is that I was in Northern California selling wine. I couldn't afford to fly home to my wife in Houston, so I spent the weekend. A friend had an apartment in Sausalito. I stayed there and I spent the weekends in Sonoma, Napa, and oh, South. What a horrible place to <laughs> yeah. yeah, how, how did you endure oh, it, Charles? God. I adjusted, okay, I missed my wife, but, but uh, well, there must be some song about a, a, bottle of, a bottle of wine makes up for a little bit. Anyway, I met people that had just entered the craft wine business. No new winery had been built in the Napa Valley or Sonoma County or Contra Costa County since before prohibition so from so is this like the dawn of micro the dawn of what i call boutique wines. boutique wineries yeah. Right. Yeah. so those were the, we we would now call them craft wineries or artisan wineries right they were family owned companies and they were people from all different professions became interested in wine and really seattle was instrumental because boeing jumbo jets took broad numbers of people to visit countries where the lifestyle was different and the lifestyle included having a nice glass of wine with dinner. That was not the habit in America and we were taught not to do that by prohibition. Right. But when Boeing and also students, they all, it was de rigueur, not when I was in college, although I did, I was an outlier, but not too many years later, for every college student to get on one of those jumbo jets and go explore Europe. And, uh, and more recently, Asia. So when they did that, they realized, hey, that's a really nice thing to do, to have a glass of wine with your meal. And it, it, it tastes good, it enhances the meal. So about that time, this latent industry in California that was asleep since 1919, when Prohibition was an accident so in California. when did they start cranking it up? They, 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 woke, up, they woke up like... 60s? Pardon me? Uh, when did it start to 69? The first, oh. the first new winery. Oh, I think of that as being like a winery, wine area for hundreds of years. Yeah, the, so you, take it for granted, but it wasn't always that way. It wasn't that way. It's I, like Leavenworth. I, I had visited the Napa Valley, Valley, talking about wine, yeah. uh, during that time as well. In college, I went out to visit Napa Valley and Livermore area, and there were a few wineries there. There was Louis Martini, Charles Krug. Uh, Behringer, Wente Brothers, there were a handful of winery family companies that continued to make wine a after Prohibition, and but it was the, the industry was asleep. No one really, you didn't go to someone's home and, and you weren't offered a glass of wine. When I moved here in 1974, neighbors would have us over. I was with Saint-Michel, so all, they did serve wine, but their typical tipple would have been a, a martini or a, or a, yeah. a, a cocktail, sure. not not sure. A, a, a wine. Then yeah. how did you get to beer? Well, hold on. Because when I think of let's Pike get back Place, to that. So, Brad, you want to set us up? Yeah, so <laughs> I want to get back to like, so Merchant Duvin, the best way to explain is you guys were the first ones to start inter like 
we introduced the different taste in beer. The yeah. different Prior taste of beer. time, people assume yep. that you, if you tried one from Japan and one from China and one from Mexico and one from Germany and one from England, then you were educating yourself because you're Chinese beer tasted, but the reality was what a Chinese beer tasted like was a Budweiser. It was a, made with because that was cinema, kind of the made with uh, lots of corn syrup. Excuse me for doing that. I hope I didn't. No, we're all we're good. No, that was hanging pretty. We just don't want there. we just don't want to miss the content. So, so the significance. So, so, so what I did is I said, well. I'm happy that it's from Denmark, but if it doesn't taste any different than that yeah. here, who cares? Right. And so what I did is I, because my, in wine, what we're interested in is the different characteristics of taste. So, for example, a Chardonnay tastes different than a white Riesling. A Cabernet tastes different than a, a Zinfandel or a Beaujolais. Or or does it? Maybe, maybe it's just a mare. Maybe it's all tastes the same. I don't know. I don't know about no? that. No? No? Okay. So, so I applied the wine. That's why it was called Merchant of Anne, a wine mentality to marketing beer. I love that's beer. That's cool. But I just couldn't couldn't find any good good beer. Okay. Occasionally, if I traveled, I could. I, dr I drank Anchor Steam Beer when I was in San Francisco, for example. It wasn't that great at the time. Right. And it, it was just about out of business when Fritz Maytag, the washing machine air, bought it, it because of the poor quality of the beer. So that's why we called it Merchant of Ann, and then immediately we started introducing these beers. People had never heard of a Belgian beer in America. Well, and this is the important part of the story because you basically kind of changed the local palate when it came to beers it wasn't by local. doing that. It was national. It was national. I did okay. everything I did. I, same with the wine. So you I did on a national scale. It's hard to believe, but I, it, even in my own years, I would say I didn't see good beer until about 1990, maybe. Where, here in Seattle? Uh, no, I was in northern Nevada, oh. two hours from Reno. Yeah, and one of the reasons Nevada is, is what you said way. earlier is Nevada. It was Bud Miller Coors, if you want to get fancy, it was Heineken Low and Brown. They, they have really right? horrible laws in Nevada. It must be the morning. How is that possible? It's like yeah. the 24-hour uh, drink and legalized prostitution. Yeah, well, the, 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 you know, irony occurs. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, so, yeah, it, uh, how was it locally, though? If I was starting to see good beer in 90, was it like 85 well, We're going to get into that. How far so we're behind get, was Winnemucca? So we're, we're about to get into that, so... Let us so steer him back to Merchant Duvin. Yeah, you're skipping ahead a little bit. So, you kind of helped develop a more sophisticated beer palette that kind of paved the way for the robust craft beer movement, which is kind of what Lou's getting at. That would soon yeah, be so streeping the first, across the country. The first local beers. They didn't call them craft beers. They called them microbreweries. I remember that. I remember that. There was no yep. term craft beer. It was micro right. They're still right. called micros, right? Well, even no. Even micros? Micro is relatively new. Yeah, that's new too. But yeah. it was started yeah. in the first uh, craft beer in Washington State was Grant's Brewery in Yakima. Yeah. And I think that started in 81. That started in 81. So we're about well, Back to... in the day, nobody was calling it a microbrewery back then. No, they, no, they called it because Grant's opened with maybe 2,500 barrels of beer a year. The uh, Rainier, the next, yeah. the other brewery in the state, or Olympia, did more than a million barrels of right. beer a year. 
Right. So that so one is a macro, one's a micro. Right. Where that name I think the name came from Vince Catoni, who was one of the first beer writers of any newspaper in America here in Seattle. Okay. So yeah, and that's important. So this it's is Vince on the mic. So here in Washington State, in nineteen eighty two, the Washington State Liquor Control Board loosened up some of their pros post-prohibition liquor laws and finally allowed for the sale and manufacture of beer of up to 8% ABV. Now prior to this, and we've talked about this in previous episodes. What year was it? So this was in 1982. That's when you can start up to 8? I don't believe that's I don't think that's was true. It, was it 81? Was it maybe no, a little? I, I don't know that it was either of those. I, I sold strong beer in Washington State during that time. Well, I think but it you was you were doing it on um, the sly, right? No. No, no. I, I think it was the manufacture of beer. I think that was a key word. Oh, so local you, could you could sell you could sell like imported beer, like what you were selling but at Merchant Duvin. But you couldn't manufacture any beer higher than at that point four percent. Uh huh. So in I didn't know that. eighty one and eighty two, the Washington State Liquor Control Board finally loosened up. Now we've talked about this before. So immediately after Prohibition, it was three point two percent. And then they, they inched it up to 4%, like, I don't know, sometime in the late 40s, early 50s, somewhere around there. And that was the case for a while. So that's why... So, by the way, if, if I may yeah. interrupt. Yeah, yeah. That, the 3.2 beer continued to be available in Colorado, in Utah. Utah. Oh, yeah. There's a lot of states. states, yeah. Until last year when Colorado passed the law. Isn't that crazy? Yeah, that, that Colorado now, beer could be sold anywhere. And it could be, at that time, beer 3.2 could be sold in the supermarket. Yeah. Now yeah. any beer can be sold in the supermarket. Right. So if you wanted to beer, you don't. No one wants 3.2 anymore. It, so that's that, that's so mind blowing. Because of Colorado, right. all states discontinued it. Right. Yes. Yeah. Right. Which is mind blowing. I mean, that was just recently. So I, I mean, that's, yeah, last that's year. Over 80 years. It's it's crazy. So here in Washington State, though, so when they inched it up to 8 percent, the Washington State Liquor Control Board. So this kind of kicked off the first wave of craft brewing in Washington State. I don't uh, think it probably did, really. I don't think it had anything to do with that. You don't think so? Well, no. it had, according to Burt Grant, who's the owner of the Yakima Brewing Company, and Paul Shipman, who founded Red, Red Hook. Hook a few months later, yep. both of them were encouraged or were used as a role model, Samuel Smith beer, which we imported because people were willing to pay a higher price. Okay. And Samuel Smith beer and most of the beers we sold were not eight, not strong. They were four or five percent. Yeah. So. Yeah. Uh, and the, the, I've never heard until you said it just now. It had anything to do with alcohol. Huh. Or them loosening up the law. It's funny. Sam I, w- Smith. I wouldn't also give the state the credit for creating <laughs> a beer industry when they didn't. <laughs> Decidedly, they didn't. Well. When this happened, so you mentioned Burt Grant. So Burt Grant was also one of the godfathers of craft beer in Washington State. So he was one of the first craft breweries to open over he, in Yakima. He was the first. He was the first one. Yeah, in the yeah. state. And yeah. he also opened the first brew pub in the state. And he opened the first brew pub, which was the first one to open nationwide in that whole country since Prohibition. I uh, believe that one was the Buffalo Bills Hayward Brewing Company. Buffalo oh, Bills was it? Brewery in Hayward. Uh-huh. That was the first brew pub? Yeah. And then Hayward, was, California, was, Bay yeah, Area. Hayward, California. And so oh, Burt okay. Grant's was number two then? I, I think so. Okay, okay. Burt Grant was the first to brew modern IPA. Okay, yes, that's right. 
Typical Seattleites, everything started here. Rock and roll started here. Good beer started yeah. here. Jazz started here. Well, that's what they say. I say it too. That's good. I love that. Sure. And it, yeah. yeah, I mean, and, and that's huge. So before Burt Grant's modern IPA, the IPA that was before that was Ballantine's. Uh huh. And then before that, it was originally IPA was over in England when they were sailing to India and they well, were we had IP but it wasn't the IP we recognize today right we, no but that definitely wasn't it was more like a, a spontaneously fermented beer huh. yeah Britannomyces beer they say right the one shipped to England not by design even necessarily it was just that it was very right. very difficult they would ship the beer in cask and then disassemble the cask in India ship them back as ballast on the ships and then and then reassemble the barrels and ship them again, and during that time they would get these infection. You can look at that in a positive or negative mm, way. Infected beer. Yeah, mm. but and they weren't the hoppy IPAs that we know today, right? It really wasn't. Yeah, no. yeah, that's a. It, it know, was sort of a, a semblance of it. What right. happened is, during the Industrial Revolution, it, it, that the Industrial Revolution uh, was simultaneous with the Raj where a couple of million people from England moved to India yeah. and tried to run India yeah. the, politically. And, and not only tried, succeeded for, until Gandhi came along right. to do that, a couple, several hundred years. So those people, not the Indian people, wanted what was available in London where they came from or in England, and that was pale ale, made possible by the, the Industrial Revolution inventing kilning to kiln the malt in an amber pale way so that that kind of beer could consistently be made. So that was... Sierra the, Nevada Pale Ale? Pardon me? Sierra Nevada? That's an example of that style. Yeah. Right. So it's an amber That's colored beer. That's the one beer. you saw in northern Nevada. Yeah. When they, uh, these people got to India, they wanted what was available oh, to their yeah. brethren at home. and But pale ale is not highly hopped enough. So hops are a natural preservative. They hopped the hell out of it, and they shipped it to India. It was first known as India Ale, or then India Pale Ale. And it's really, it's only in modern parlance that the word IPA right. would be used to describe it. And now right. it, it has a life of its own, right. and it's by far the most popular style of beer. Right. And it, it, it is highly hopped. And probably if you tasted a bass ale, India Pale Ale, which was the biggest one at the, in the 18th century, also the biggest brewery in the world as a result of it. They drank it, and they didn't drink it for Palat Paneer and Alagobi, they drank it for roast beef and Yorkshire pudding. <laughs> yeah, and so who, true British who's, style. Who's got the most authentic, original India Ale? I don't think there is such a thing. Yeah, it would yeah have to it's be, more like a style that a million people uh, are working on. Yeah, I'm trying right? to describe... It's like a genre just, of it music. It was shipped in cask, and in wooden cask that were probably inoculated with these wild yeast. That's what I read. There are several books about the history of uh, IPA. IPA. And they'd ship these barrels back. Sanitation wasn't quite the same. So it was likely a spontaneous... Uh, like a wild beer, more like a guzza. Almost like a like a farmhouse style. Yeah, like house. a farmhouse. Yeah. That's yeah. exactly right. Wow, that's that's yeah. crazy. No farm. These were big companies. They weren't farms. Yeah. Right. But that made it. But the taste wise. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It, it probably approximated a little bit. Maybe uh, cosmic pulp. That's one of our real 
fruity and so juicy. Do you, do, you have a, do you have a favorite, like, kind of old school IPA? I like the one you're having. Or name How a couple. Like what, what's some good IPAs? Name a couple. Oh. Couple Good salesman of, over here. <laughs> well, you're having you're having Space Needle IPA, right? The fresh yeah, hop yeah. Space Needle yeah, and, the, and the regular one. So both of those, that's dry hop, meaning they put hops in. We put hops in after the wort is boiled, and we have a big a big infusion vessel where the hops, the wort seeps in the hops just like tea in a tea bag, and it infuses more hop character, more that conifer or grapefruit-like flavor of the hops. And that, of course, depends upon the variety of hops. The terroir. The terroir, right. And so the terroir, that's one of the things. <laughs> nice. I know you're done. about to ask about the history of craft beer. That's one of the things that changed the most dramatically is the terroir. Okay. The terroir itself, the soil is the same, but the, what they grow on it is way different. And so now we have Mosaic and Amarillo and Columbus. Right, all the different hop varieties. We yeah. didn't have any of that. We had, right. if we were lucky, we had uh, Cascade hops. Yeah, so this was the early 80s. Burt Grants was the first one to open, followed by Red Hook Brewery, which opened in 1981. Hales Ale opened in 1983. Thomas Kemper Brewing, which launched from Bainbridge Island in 1984. Yep. And Heart Brewing, which later became Pyramid Brewing, which also opened in 84. Yeah, and also 87 was Big Time Brewery. Big Time Brewery. Big Time, big time on the app? Yeah. yeah. Well, we're does, both does, UW alumni, so. Does that. Uh, near and dear to ours. What? Yeah, we spent a lot of time there. A big Time? Big Time, oh, oh yeah. yeah. That's, I hope you're not describing that as a dive. Hopefully not what? No, no. Describing we're... that as a dive. Oh, no. No, not at all. No, not at all. Well, it, oh, well, we it, it does have there. some because it's we been there, there a long yeah. time. Yeah, it's a, it's and a, it's a not like university history. district. It's great not history. been remodeled. We're, we're or... sort of the Downton Abbey of the craft beer. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> that's, actually, that's good. That's a good description. I like that. I like yeah. that. that. That's a good description. Shuffleboard. So in, in 1989, you and your wife decided to throw your hat in the craft beer ring. And you opened the Pike Place Brewery, as it was then known. At some point, you sold the brewery, but later decided to return and repurchase it back, where it now operates here in its current location as the Pike Brewing Company. Right. Well, we actually, it wasn't necessarily in that order. We opened it in 89 as the Pike Place Brewery, and then the Pike Place Market Authorities decided to close us down because the person that lived above the brewery, which was 1432 Western, just below us about a half a block, claimed that the hop aroma gave him headaches. <laughs> and that the beer in general was, uh, because it had alcohol, was a demon that was it should be avoided. So the market wow. closed us down wow. in, until we could prove that we were not producing a, a harmful product. We also outgrew that space. We wanted a restaurant, so we moved to this space a half a block away, and we changed the name to the Pike Brewing Company okay. and never looked back. That's fantastic. So People still call us the Pike Place Brewery. So now we're here we are at the Pike Brewing Company. So now, that's, this is 1996. Right. We opened this pub that we're in now, the museum. 1996, and, okay. And we had a restaurant which is the tradition that we learned when we represented these brewers in Europe, they all have their own public houses, their own restaurants, sometimes hotels, 
sometimes. Uh, and you modeled it after that. Yeah, we yeah. modeled. We that was our role model. Yeah. Samuel Smith Brewery, Einger Brewery, Pincus Muller Brewery. They've been doing it. Pincus since 1811. Samuel Smith since 1758. Einger has a hotel restaurant that's been there since 1370. Wow. Wow. That's crazy. You know, did, did you feel that the restaurant and the whole public house concept was kind of required to keep the people coming in? I thought it was, a, well, it was a good opportunity, profit-wise, and uh, because what, what was a legislation that changed the face of brewing and selling beer in America was Jimmy Carter signing the law in 1978 yeah, that right. made home brewing legal yeah. and also made vertical integration legal. Right. So we're vertically integrated. We manufacture the product and then we sell it to the consumer in our own public house. So that's vertical integration. That couldn't be done because of prohibition era laws. That weren't pro repealed until Carter? Yeah, the 80s. 78. 78, yeah. Wow. When home brewing was finally made legal. Yeah. There were people doing it, but it was very underground and, you know, it was kind yeah, of well, uh, on the deal. Home brewing was not underground here. Yeah, Everybody right, right. We actually, we actually <laughs> bought a active, home brew yeah. supply company that was operating illegally. It was founded in 1921, right. Liberty Malt Supply, and it's operating illegally, I guess, not as a business, but... We were encouraging people to yeah. brew beer. But if you see over there during Prohibition, they say you could go to any Bartels in Seattle and buy, buy everything yeah, that's you right. need to buy to make beer. Make beer, yeah. That's in your uh, first book, Brad. That's in my first book. I yeah. talked about that, yeah. Yeah. So since then, you have received numerous awards over the years for your contributions. And in 2006, Draft Magazine listed you as one of the top 10 beer innovators that shaped the American craft beer renaissance. A lot of people have sang your praise over the years, understandably, and I would like to read a few of those quotes. The famed beer writer Michael Jackson said this about you. It is no exaggeration to say that every beer lover in America has benefited from his journey, your journey. Paul Shipman, co-founder of Red Hook, Finko was so far ahead of the curve in the alcoholic beverage business that even pioneers like me were astonished. <laughs> and lastly, noted beer writer Stephen Beaumont called Charles, quote-unquote, no less than a legend in American beer circles. So, I mean, those are some pretty impressive accolades. Thanks for saying that. You didn't mention what my grandmother said. Uh -oh. Which one? Uh -oh. Just kidding. <laughs> You're such a pain in the ass. <laughs> That's exactly what you said. So, you Don't know, give me a beer. So hopefully this sums up... Charles's his whole story and why he's such a legend in the business. So with that, we'll wrap this thing up. So you guys, when, when you guys want to start first with your questions after going yeah, through the story. Question. So um, we're we're in a, it, this place is large. It's beautiful. It's it's curated every inch of it. Thank you. And. We're in a popular tourist area, so this is a family restaurant, essentially. But it's still a bar, so you got to kick people out once in a while, right? Not so much. When was so the last time for, for uh, disorderly? That's not, yeah. When was the last time you had to kick someone out of here? Yeah, occasionally, yes, but I think probably not much more than any other place would. Huh. Uh, one thing is we're, we're like a fortress. We're subterranean, and we <laughs> know good, who yeah. comes and goes. So unlike last night, I was upstairs with my 
with my neighbor who owns a Mexican import store. Oh, yeah. And right upstairs. That place is amazing. And he was saying some guy came in and stole some of the expensive, walked in, took it, and ran. We don't have that happen very often for what reason I just told you. But in general, we are a public house, which, which is where the word pub came from. It's a place that extends hospitality, just like we would if you were in our home, except in my home I wouldn't charge you. But, <laughs> but it's sustainable because we do charge. And uh, so we have mostly a lot of nice people. We have people of every ethnicity, every sexual persuasion, every age, from babies to, to octogenarians. And uh, it's a nice place. It I love nice coming So the vibe yeah. of it just sort of distracts fan. those people who might get we just come here we, to get hammered. And we don't, we don't, uh, legally we can't encourage anyone to overconsume. Yeah. And we and and morally we don't encourage anyone to over right. to. What about and and we set the example ourselves because we're pretty temperate. Well and brew pubs in general are pretty much more mellow places than like the dive bars, some of the dive bars we've been in. Right. You know, people aren't coming here to see to how hammered. hammered they can get. They want to like have a couple beers, enjoy the ambiance of the place. They like the taste of the beer. The taste yeah, of the beers, like yeah. Pretty kick-ass food here too. Yeah, yeah. our food, huge, huge our food is really yeah. good, and that's yeah, why I was we just wanted here with my family a couple of months ago for lunch. Yeah, thank yeah. you. So we wanted to have a place just like it is with Europe. If you want a good, wholesome place to eat, yeah, not not too expensive, not too fancy, casual. So th this is a good place to do it. Yeah, yeah. What about you, Mr. Rue? Do you have a question? I do. Do you think Seattle developed into a beer town because of the history that you helped usher in that we just talked about? Or has Seattle always been a beer town and we just needed a little kick in the ass? innovation well, <laughs> to break us out of our shell? Yeah, beer That's a good town question. is a relative term. We always had uh, consumed a lot of beer. And one reason is that we had a decidedly male population through no the, chicks up here? a lot of our history. Did you know about Seven Brides for Seven Brothers? Sounds they, like my freshman The Alaskan Gold Rush. They advertised <laughs> oh, in Boston to bring people up here. Yeah. Yeah. bring women, women yeah. here. But we've always been home brewers here because yep. we're isolated. We're a long way from where hops uh, were at popular. New York was a hop capital before the 1870s, and that's about the time we Ezra Meeker started growing them here in, in Puget Sound. And Charles Carpenter yeah. over in uh, Yakima. Yeah, pardon me? Yeah. And Charles Carpenter yeah. over in Yakima. Yeah, but way yeah. later. Yeah, yeah, he was way after earlier Meeker, Ezra Meeker, yeah. In Puget Sound. Yeah. So, but it rains too much here. There's not enough sun. Well, it does, and that's why they moved them to Yakima, because they got powdery yeah. mildew. Yeah. But it still is a good place to grow hops. I grow hops. We grow hops here yeah. in our Post Alley Park. So, in answer to your question, yeah, I hope we made a contribution because before we were here, most of those beers you'd find in dive bars were were uh, Rainier, Olympia, Rainier, uh, Pabst, uh, all the, all that kind of Pabst, all the big big brands, Lucky Lager, all of which <laughs> all of which were that was Vancouver, Heidelberg, over here from Tacoma, Tacoma yeah. and. All of those, that's what you'd find if you went to Ballard to a dive bar, 
about 1978, that's what you'd find. Right. And then people started saying, I remember I was interviewed at FX McCrory's by a TV news person, and he tasted these beers kind of as a joke. He said, oh, I just kind of tasted a, one of my beers was Pecos wheat beer, Weizen beer. Right. And he tasted this beer, he said, oh, that's pretty good, but I just can't imagine any lager, not lager like a beer, but lager the pure Lager person, person. yeah. Kid, yeah. The Lumberjack. The Lumberjack would ever ask for a, a Weizen. Well, not too long after that, <laughs> they, were they started doing it. Yeah. So people are, I believe people inherently have pretty good taste. And they, they, if they're given the opportunity to drink a good beer or an ordinary beer, they'll take the good beer. And even though there's a premium price that they have to pay. That's and that's true. what's significant. A lot of those dive bars still have Pabst Blue Ribbon. Sure. Or they have it's totally sure. flipped. Like now yeah. you'll see five good beers and like Bud yeah. and yeah. maybe yeah, Pabst exactly. Blue Ribbon. Rainier's. Yeah, yeah and I, like I'm proud token. of that. Yeah. So am I responsible for that? No. Did I <laughs> did I have something to do with it? You had a hand definitely. in it. I had you definitely a hand. had a hand in it. Yeah. You had a big hand in it. Nice to meet all of you. Thank you, Charles. Thank you, Charles. Thank you, Charles. Thank you, Charles.